Well, I want to encourage you this morning. I know that there are times in life where we can go through trials. There are some times when there are difficult patches in our lives, and we all go through those. Uh, sometimes there could be uh, maybe a, a family issue. Maybe you, you have unbelievers in your family. Maybe the, you could have an issue at, at the workplace, maybe a tough boss or a tough work associate. Sometimes we can go through difficult financial times. Sometimes it's just persecution comes as a result of wanting to be a faithful testimony. And we want to share the gospel with those that, that don't know the Lord. And, uh, and when we do so, sometimes we can get into trouble for that. And there can be some uh, persecution or suffering that comes as a result of that. And when all we're trying to do is be faithful to the Lord and share the good news. And people can get upset about that. And, and when we do that, I often think, well, boy, what kind of encouragements could we bring to one another in times like that? When we go through a trial... When we go through a difficult patch in life, what encouragements are there in Scripture that might help us to get through those difficult times? And there are many. I, I'm an avid cyclist, and um, I love, love to get out on my road bike in New Zealand. The countryside is beautiful, and I can go out for an hour or two, and I love that. And um, July is always an exciting time for me because that's when the Tour de France takes place. Uh, the Tour de France is... An amazing competition. I think I mentioned cycling to you when I was here last time in September. That's how much I like it. Uh, in, in July, the Tour de France, it's a, it's a great competition. It lasts for three weeks. And during those three weeks, the cyclists will ride between five and seven hours a day. And on uh, any given day, they could, re- they could ride, you know, 100 miles or more. It's an incredible thing. Over the course of the three weeks, you know, they would, they would cover something like 3,000 miles. That's just a long way. I mean, these guys are machines. They, they climb mountains like it's nothing. And these mountains, the Pyrenees in the, in the south of France, some of these mountains are two miles high. And they'll go up and down the other side, and then they'll do it another couple times on one day. And they, these guys are just amazing. I often think, well, how do they make it to the end? How is it that they're willing to go through such hardship and, and make it to the end? And, and I like to pretend sometimes that I'm just like them, but I can't do it, of course. Uh, the, these are little guys, and I'm tall and big, and I weigh too much, I think, to climb those hills like they do. Uh, but some of them go through adversity just to get to Paris, which is where the Tour de France ends. Uh, there was an, a man named George Hincappy. He was an American cyclist. And a few years ago, about halfway through the Tour de France, he fell off his bike and he broke his collarbone. Now, for most cyclists, you know, that that would be the end. But George Hincapie, he's a famous guy, he just retired recently, actually. He was so compelled to finish with his team that a broken collarbone meant nothing to him. He taped it up, he refused to have it x-rayed, and he just wanted to get to the end. I mean, he was compelled uh, there was another guy a couple of years ago, Johnny Hoogerland, and he fell off his bike. A TV car hit him from the side, and he somersaulted through the air. I mean, he was going fast. Uh, sometimes if they're going down a hill, they can do something like 70 miles an hour. Well, they're going quick. And so a car came alongside him and hit him. He somersaulted through the air and landed right on top of a barbed wire fence and kind of stuck well, kind of. 
I mean, he, he stuck, he scraped himself. The barbs on the wires uh, grabbed his cycling shorts and his shirt and just ripped them off. I mean, he, he, he was really hurt by that accident. You know what he did? He got back on his bike and he finished the race and he still won the polka dot jersey for that race. After he finished, they took him to the hospital and he received 33 stitches. I mean, these guys are committed. They want to make it to the end. And I kind of wonder if in the Christian life that we might be able to learn from that a little bit. I mean, what is it that, takes, that, that, that gets them to the end in the middle of that suffering and their trials? They're committed. And they often say in cycling that the, that the key to success is one's ability to suffer. I think that's the same for us. The key to success often in the Christian life is our ability to suffer and to make it through to the end, to keep our eyes on the final goal. That's what Peter has to say in his book. I want you to go to 1 Peter with me. And 1 Peter is all about encouragements for those who would be suffering in the midst of their life because of their testimony of Christ. They, they are so compelled to share, share the gospel, so compelled to live godly lives that they were being persecuted and they were suffering for that. I remember there was a, an Australian family who were missionaries in India some years ago. It was 14 years ago and um, they were there and they, were, they had gone into a, a, a Hindu part of the country and um, the Hindus had found that they were there and they went into this home and took this Australian missionary family, there was mum and dad and some children, and put them into a van and set the van on fire and just kind of surrounded that van and made sure that the family could not escape. And I kind of thought after that, it was 14 years ago, what would I say to that family or maybe friends of the family or those that were in the church that that family came from, how could we encourage those people? What, what on earth could we say? In, in New Zealand, you know, we have these sayings. We say, she'll be right, mate. And uh, keep your chin up. Do you say that? Keep your chin up. I kind of wonder if we were to write to one of these persecuted families, like this one in India, if those sayings would come across as just a little glib just a little superficial. I mean, we would have to say much more than that, wouldn't we? I was in Myanmar, not Miramar, Myanmar, that's Burma, okay, just a few years ago, and I got there, and I was to speak at a, at a training school, and, and I wanted to make sure that I didn't do anything that was culturally wrong. And so I met with some of the leaders there, and I said, please give me some pointers, you know what? tell me what not to do, what not to say. And I was talking really about words not to use or maybe I should wear the right kinds of clothes and those kinds of things. And one of these men, he came to me and he said, you know, Nigel, I don't think that you can come here and try to encourage us in the midst of our suffering. And I thought, wow. I mean, I can't talk about that. I can't bring any kind of encouragement. And he said, you've got to understand the people that you are speaking to are persecuted all of the time. And who are you? He's talking to me. Who are you, you Westerner, to come here and think that you understand what we go through in our Christian lives? 
In fact, he had friends that had been burned. They, what they do is they take the Christians out into the streets and they put a tire over them and set the, fire, the, the tire on fire. And, uh, and they have Christians that have arms amputated, just chopped off, fingers cut off, because they're Christians. And I'm thinking to myself, what on earth could I say to encourage these people? Because life is hard as a Christian in those countries. You know, I, I look at our context here in the Western world. New Zealand's the same as here in the States. And I guess for us Christians, life is not too hard. It's pretty comfortable, really. I mean, they might, we might have some family members that give us a difficult time from, uh, sometimes when we try to share the gospel. But for the most part, we have comfortable lives, don't we? But I'm not sure that that's going to be the case for long. I'm concerned about the future, to be honest. Uh, there are political agendas. There are things happening in New Zealand even now, and I'm sure similar things are happening here. Uh, in New Zealand, there's a law that says you cannot spank your children, and if you do that, you'll be arrested. Maybe that's here already. Maybe it's close to coming. There are laws against hate speech, and so even a pastor could not really say much about you know, the Bible's view of homosexu homosexuality or euthanasia or cloning uh, or any of those kind of social issues. There are times, I, I think the time is coming, and maybe 10 years, maybe 15, maybe 20 years, when even here in this country, persecution is going to take place, and we need to be prepared. How are we going to encourage one another when persecution and suffering comes. And I would say this too. If we can prepare ourselves for the worst kinds of persecution, then we would also be prepared, wouldn't we, for even the small kinds of persecution that might take place even now. So what I want to do is go to First Peter with you. Just take your Bibles and look at First Peter. And I want to show you, first of all, that these believers actually were suffering. I want to show you so you can see it with your, your own eyes. Look at chapter 1. And verse 6, and Peter's writing there in verse 6, and he says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. These believers were enduring multicolored trials, all kinds of trials, not just one kind, many kinds of trials. And then turn over and look at chapter 2 with me as well. In chapter 2, verse 19, and Peter continues to describe their situation there. And in verse 19, he says, For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a man bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right, and suffer for that, you patiently endure it. This finds favor with God. And then look at this, verse 21. That's just a key verse. For you have been called for this purpose. Imagine that. He's writing to these persecuted Christians, and he's saying to them, you have been called for the purpose of suffering. Oh, that's a shocker. God called them for that. God chose them so that they might suffer. He elected them for that purpose. Look at chapter 3. Chapter 3 and verse 14. And he writes there, 
In verse 14, he says, Even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation. Do not be troubled. And then go on down to verse 17. For it's better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And again, Peter's describing their situation. They were being intimidated. They were being slandered. Uh, Men revile them. But notice verse 17. That happens because of God's will. If God should will it so, you will suffer. Look at chapter 14 with me. Sorry, chapter 4 and verse 12. Chapter 4 and verse 12. And there Peter writes in verse 12, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your what? For your testing, as though it was some strange thing happening to you. And here, Peter describes this situation as if it's a fiery ordeal, and he says, don't be surprised. In fact, this is the what? This is the norm. If you're a Christian, this is the norm. If we're going to be faithful to preach the gospel, if we're faithful to share the good news, this is the norm. Suffering is going to come. Look at verse 19. He says there, Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God, see that phrase? It's according to the will of God. Let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Why would he encourage these believers to entrust their souls to their creator? It's got to be this. It's got to be that some of the believers were even being martyred for their faith. Some of them were dying because they were preaching the gospel. And so Peter encourages them and says, entrust your souls to God because God cares for your soul." The Greek word for suffer, it's spread all through this letter. Fifteen times Peter uses that word. This letter is all about suffering. And he's writing to these people to encourage them in the midst of their great tribulation. Now, who were these believers? Let's answer that question. Who were they? Where did they come from? Well, if you go to chapter 1 and verse 1, you'll see the answer there. These are the people that Peter is writing to. In chapter 1, verse 1, he starts the letter and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, I've got a map for you. It's going to go up here. There we go. I've circled those areas. And, uh, and these people are spread all over these countries. And you can see it's a large area. Peter's writing to a group of Christians that are spread all over the place. Now, you would have noticed there also that it used the word aliens. Did you see that? In chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens. Do you know what an alien is? I, I know what an alien is. Uh, years ago, uh, things are a little more PC these days, but years ago, I would say, uh, Serena, our first trip to LAX from New Zealand, I guess about 20 years ago, something like that, and I remember coming into LAX, and there were two lines that you could come through immigration. 
there was the line for the American citizens, and then there was the line for the, what? Aliens. These, that, that was us, by the way. We went there. These were the people who were not American citizens. These were the people who were visiting. These were the people entering the United States, and, and, and the United States was not their home. We came in and we were aliens. These days they call it, I don't know what they call it, visitors. It's something a little more nice. But it used to be called aliens. And, and so what we have here are, are a group of aliens. That means you have Christians living in these areas. Now, th- these areas are not their home. They've been scattered into these areas because of, guess what? Persecution. I mean, they're running for their lives. Now, what happened in this day, actually, you know the name Nero? He was a Roman emperor, and uh, Nero, he ruled the, the Roman world in those days. And in AD 64, Nero, he, he, he was a man who loved to build, loved to build. And uh, I guess Rome had some boundaries, and when there was no more room to build, you know what he decided to do? Just light the place on fire flatten the city so that he could start all over again. Well, guess what? There are people living in the city, and they didn't like that too much. They didn't like it at all. Their homes were burned, their businesses were burned, and Nero needed to find a scapegoat. He needed to blame this. He needed to blame someone for the fire. And so he, he knew the Christians. He hated the Christians, he blamed the Christians living in that city for the fire. And so the, the inhabitants of the city basically increased their hatred for those Christians too. And this is the way he said it. He said, you know what? Uh, these Christians lit the fire in the city. They're responsible. After all, they're the ones talking about the end of the world anyway. So it kind of made sense. And so the persecution of the Christians in the Roman Empire almost became legalized. If you wanted to persecute a Christian, that was okay. And Nero said, go for it. Have at it. Scare them away. Run them off. Uh, persecute them. Do whatever you like to the Christians. So, and so the Christians are running for their lives, and they go into these areas. And now Peter, he knows many of these believers, and now he's writing to encourage them. So do you, do you get the scene? You know what's going on. You know why he's writing. And I want to I show you here that Peter has seven encouragements for them. In fact, I want to focus really on the first 12 verses. So let's read those, shall we? So go to chapter 1. And the passage before us this morning, I know it's a long introduction, but we're going to dig in here. In chapter 1, verse 1, we're going to read the first 12 verses. Can we do that? So it says there, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled 
and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to the salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. An amazing passage. I want to show you from this passage that there are seven encouragements for Christians who are being persecuted. And I think in the bulletin, there's maybe a page there. You can take some notes. Here's number one, and we'll go through these pretty quickly. In the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your trial, the number one thing that you want to remember is your sovereign election. Remember your sovereign election. Look at verse one again. It says there in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are what? Chosen. They're chosen. Literally, we would translate it this way, a Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect sojourners of the dispersion. The very first fact that Peter wants these scattered Christians to know is that they have been chosen by Almighty God. And that's an encouragement. You imagine you're going through a trial, a difficult time, and you think that there's despair all around, and maybe your joy is dissipating. Peter says to you, you've been chosen by God. What a huge encouragement. I remember years ago, in fact, I have a picture here for you. Let's see. This, this is a, do you know the game rugby? Some of you know the game rugby, okay? This is, this is a famous game. It happened in 1994. In New Zealand, we have this national team. They're called the All Blacks. And uh, in 1994, they were playing the Australian national team. That's the, the Wallabies. And the game was really close. It was tied up and... And this young player, it's the, it's, the, it's the man in the black jersey there, his name was Jeff Wilson. He, he had just started playing with the All Blacks, just his career was just getting started really. And he, he hit the ball. You have to imagine, that, I mean, I didn't, rugby is important in New Zealand, okay? And, uh, and New Zealanders live and die basically on the tempo of how rugby is going, you know, in, in our country. Well, 
Jeff Wilson, he had the ball, and basically all he needed to do was hold, keep a hold of the ball, fall over the, we call it the try line, what do you call it, the touchdown line, okay? And he just, all he needed to do was fall over, really. I mean, who couldn't do that with the ball? But you can see there, there's a guy just behind him tackling him. His name is George Gregan, and he's from Australia, and we hated him. But he, he came... And he tackled Jeff, and Jeff, Jeff fumbled the ball, fell down, no try was scored, and New Zealand lost the game and mourned for weeks. I was just mourned. Now, you know after the game, you know, most sports uh, uh, disciplines, they have those, uh, what do they call it, the media, you know, the interviews, and the players are there, and they have to answer for themselves. <laughs> well... Jeff, Jeff Wilson is there, and Laurie Maines. Now, Laurie Maines was one of, probably one of the best all-black coaches ever. And Jeff Wilson, he's this young guy. He's just getting started. And, and you know those interviewers, and they can be mean, right? I mean, they're just blunt. And, and one of these guys is like, Jeff, you know, what happened? How could you do this? And, uh, and Jeff was, he was sorry because it was a big mistake, and he, he said this, you know, I'm not even sure if I'm cut out to be on this team. That was a sad time. And by the way, Jeff went on to become one of the greatest All Blacks ever. But get this, he's young. And I just remember this, Laurie Maines, who was the coach, it was almost like no one else was in the room. And he turned to Jeff and he said, Jeff, listen to me. You are on this team because I chose you. What an encouragement, a huge encouragement, because Laurie is so well-respected. And, and, and Laurie Maines, he's saying to all of New Zealand, I don't care about you, I want to talk to this man. Be encouraged, I chose you. Now, get this. Jeff Wilson went on to become one of the greatest all-black players ever. His career probably lasted about 15 years. Now, if that is true for a silly game, like rugby. If that guy could be so encouraged by that statement, how much more is it an encouragement to you and I to know that in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, we have been chosen by Almighty God to be on his team. That's an amazing encouragement. And it's not because we've done anything special, and it's not because we're tremendously gifted. We, we bring nothing to the table, but God has chosen us out of our weakness, out of our sinfulness, sinfulness, and made us a part of his family, put us on his team. We ought to be encouraged, shouldn't we? And that is exactly what happened here for those that Peter is writing to. He's encouraging them and saying, oh boy, you've been chosen by God. Don't you ever forget that. That's number one. Let's go to number two. The second thing that you can remember when you're going through those difficult times is that you have an ultimate living hope. An ultimate living hope. Look at verse 3. You know, I wish we could spend some more time on these verses, but we'll skip over some of these clauses. But look at verse 3. And Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again, get this, to a living what? Hope. 
a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. See, we don't have a dead hope. We have a living hope. What is this living hope? Well, it's eternal life. We'll get there in just a second. Peter will describe that in verse 4. He calls it there an inheritance. But Peter wanted these persecuted believers to know that they had a living hope that would never die. The hope began when God caused them to be born again, and it was accomplished through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying to them, listen, there's no reason to be downhearted, no reason to give up, because God has given us a hope. Now, this hope is a confident assurance that one day we are going to receive an inheritance that will never fade away, never disappear, and it will last for eternity. That is our hope. Now, I have a lot of hopes in this world. <laughs> you know, I hope the All Blacks will win. I, I don't know who you support. I hope the Lakers will win, whatever. hope that interest rates don't go up too much more. Sometimes it's just wishful thinking, though, isn't it? Especially with the Lakers. No, okay. <laughs> Sometimes it's just wishful thinking. But th- And that's all it is. But see, in Christ, we have a living hope, a confident assurance. It's based upon an absolute certainty. God will not let us down. God cannot let us down. We are going to be transported into his presence, Peter says, into that heavenly scene. It's a certainty. It's an absolute. It's irrevocable. God will not fail. That's our hope. That's got to be an encouragement. When you go through that difficult time, we keep our eyes on the future, don't we? We think about that. What is this guarantee? Look, look at this. I want to go to number three. We have a sovereign election. We have an ultimate living hope. And thirdly, we have a final inheritance. A final inheritance. If you're suffering, if you're being persecuted, going through a difficult time, you need to realize that you have a final inheritance. Look at verse 4. Actually, we'll start there midway through verse 3, shall we? In verse 3, God has caused us to be born again, here it is, to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. In verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. Now think about that. If you're a believer in Christ, you have an inheritance waiting for you in heaven. And this inheritance has four qualities. Did you catch them? Did you see them there? Firstly, it's imperishable, so it won't lessen in value. It won't disappear in time. Secondly, it's undefiled, so that means it's pure, it's spotless, it's good. Thirdly, it won't fade away into nothing. And fourth... It's reserved in heaven for you. Let's imagine that. In heaven, there's an inheritance and your name is on it. No one can steal it. No one can take it away. It's reserved just for you. When you get there, you can go pick it up. I remember years ago, my grandmother passed away. And, and uh, before, she, before she died, she, uh, she came to Serena and I and she said, you know, I really want to uh, make you a part of my will, my estate. And, and she said to us, I want to give you $10,000. I 
And that was pretty huge to us back then. That would have changed our lives, to be honest. And uh, so that was good. That was an encouragement, and we thanked her for that. And a few months later, she did pass away. Well, you know what happens when someone dies in the family. There's bills to pay. There's funeral costs. Um, there's taxes. And in our case, there was actually a little bit of a family debate too over, over how this estate should be divided up. And uh, she had four children and a lot of grandchildren, and I was the only grandson that had been promised anything in the will. And, of course, the others didn't like that. And uh, I said to Serena, I said, you know, we're not going to fight this. You know, we're just going to trust the Lord. Whatever comes, comes. That's fine. And uh, a, a few months, to, you know, went by, and it took a while for all the legalities to be worked out. But eventually we got a check. Remember how much we were promised? 10000 We got a check for $450. See, that's, that's what happens with wills and estates, isn't it? I mean, that's just kind of the norm, and maybe that's an extreme case, but they never typically turn out to be as good as they were first promised to be. But that's not the case with our final inheritance in heaven. It's there. It's reserved for you. It will not dissipate in value. It's being held in trust. Your name is on it. No one can take it away when you get there, you can go pick it up. Isn't that cool? So when you go through that time of hardship and, and, and persecution and suffering, you need to remember your final inheritance because it's there waiting for you. And you can be excited about that. It doesn't matter what type of persecution you're experiencing. That is reserved in heaven for you. No one can take it away. Look at number four. The fourth encouragement that you can remind yourselves of is our future salvation. We have a future salvation. When you're being treated harshly because of Christ, you need to have your eyes fixed on this. If your eyes fixed on that future salvation, which is still to come, look at verse 5. In verse 5, Peter says, You who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And you say, well, what kind of salvation is this? Well, look at verse 9. In verse 9, uh, he says, Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So this salvation that Peter is mentioning here is the salvation of our souls. And, but you might say, well, I already know about that. I got saved a, a little while ago. Well, yeah. But remind yourself of verse 5. This salvation is a salvation that's to be revealed in the last time. So think about that. We know that salvation comes in, I guess, three phases. We have the past and the present and the future, right? In the past, if you're a believer, uh, you, you got saved. That's when you accepted Christ as your Savior. You confessed your sin you asked him to forgive you, and you became his child. That's in the past. And then there's present salvation. That's happening all the time right now. And that is, you know, we got saved, and then today we're trying to live in the light of that salvation. Today, we call it the process of what? Sanctification. We're trying to live like Christ. He's made us holy. He's made us perfect. And now 
we're trying to live in the light of that. That's sanctification. That's present salvation. But there is a future salvation which is still to come. And we haven't even experienced that yet. I mean, think about it. I'm glad I'm a believer. Are you? And being a Christian is fantastic and such a blessing. But we haven't experienced anything yet because one day we will experience that future salvation when we will be glorified and we won't sin anymore. I get frustrated with myself when I sin. I hate that. I hate the fact that I'm tempted so often. And I can't wait for that day. Now, I don't have a death wish, okay? That's a, don't think that. But I can't wait for that day when I'm in Christ's presence and I'm transformed and I will not battle sin and temptation anymore. That's the day to look forward to. When you go through that trial, think about future salvation. You know, there was a, a missionary. He was from Great Britain. And uh, he ministered in Portugal for 50 years. His name was Eric Barker. And in the Second World War, just things got a bit tough in Portugal. So uh, the people that were a part of the ministry there, they said, you know, maybe, Eric, you should, you should go back to England with your family. And, and he thought, well, probably that's a wise thing to do. So, uh, but he did have some ministry things to take care of. So he packed up his family, his wife and eight children, and uh, then there was his sister and her three children and put them on a ship and sent them back to England. And this, just a few weeks later, he would follow. Well, a few days went by, must have been even a few weeks, and uh, he stood up in front of the congregation because he'd received news. And he said to the congregation that he had been ministering with, he said, my family have ar- arrived home safely. It's good news. But it wasn't until after the service was done and he really explained what had happened to his family that everyone understood. Because on the way back to England, the boat that his family were on had been torpedoed by a German U-boat and they had all perished. But you see, here's, here's his perspective. My family have arrived home safely. See, that's a man who has his eyes fixed on not only his own future salvation, but even his family's future salvation. And I think that's even harder. You know, it's one thing to think that maybe I could be martyred. It's another thing to think that my family would be martyred. But this is a man who had his eyes fixed on future salvation, and it changed everything. He could go through the hardest time, and it changed his perspective. Let's go to number five. Let's do this quickly. Number five. We want to remind ourselves that we have an enduring faith. That's number five, enduring faith. Look at verse five. You who are protected by the power of God through faith. So somehow it's through faith that God protects us. And then he goes on to talk about that faith. Look at verse six. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, remember, If if God deems it, if necessary, from God's point of view, he might take us through a time of struggle. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. Why? Well, look at verse 7. It's so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, 
may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Here's the question. Why does God bring persecution into our lives? And Peter gives us the answer. He says, it's so that our faith might be tested. But get this. It's not our faith anyway. It was given to us, wasn't it? Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, salvation is given to us. It's a gift. It's not of ourselves. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. So here's the thing. God gives us this gift of faith, and now that we're believers, he's going to test, test that gift. He's going to test our faith to show that the faith he has given to us is not faulty. It's not weak. It's a strong faith, and it will never fall over. That's why God brings persecution into our lives. It's to show his faithfulness to us. It's to show that his gift of faith is a strong faith. We need to have that mindset. You know, when you go through a difficult time, and you think, what's going what, What's the purpose of this? I don't understand it. Is there a lesson for me to learn? Well, here's one lesson. God has given you a faith that will not fall over. We need to be reminded of that sometimes. It's a strong faith. It's more precious than gold. Look at this. Number six, God has given us a real joy when you're going through a difficult time. You know that we can experience real joy. We don't understand how that could be. But look at verse eight. Though you have not seen Jesus Christ, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly with, rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Think about this. Peter doesn't need to write to these Christians and say, well, guys, you, you, you seem a bit dowdy. You need to have more joy. He doesn't do that. He says, no, you've already got a joy. It's a joy that's inexpressible. It can't be communicated. You're probably thinking to yourselves, how did we get this joy? And Peter doesn't have an answer. It's, I guess it's come from God. It's a joy that they were already experiencing. It's definitely not some kind of emotional outburst, some kind of superficial joy that could be whipped up. Somehow in their hearts, they were joyful because they knew that everything was well between them and God. That's joy. That is the definition of true joy. You know, um, I, I read a book just a, a little while ago called uh, Five English Reformers. It's just a little book, and if you haven't read that, you need to get it. It talks about faithful pastors in England who were burned at the stake for their faith. And what struck me was this. Their congregations would come, and their families, their wives and children would be there, and their families would sing songs of praise while their pastor, their father, their husband was tied to the stake and burned there. And they, they would rejoice. And it wasn't that they were happy that this man was dying. It was rather they knew that this was God's will and everything was right between them and God. That is joy. It doesn't matter what comes in your life. There can be joy. There was an old Jesuit priest, and he said this, Joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. He said, grimness is not a Christian virtue. You got that? 
Grimness is not a Christian virtue. There are no sad saints. If God really is the center of one's life and being, joy is inevitable. If we have no joy, we have missed the heart of the good news, and our bodies, as much as our souls, will suffer the consequences. I believe that. Christians are joyful people, even in the midst of difficult times. Let me go to number seven, and we'll wrap this up. If you're going through a difficult time, a trial, a period of hardship, you need to know that you know all of these things through, and this is a bit strange, but I'll explain, through special revelation. Special revelation. Look at verses 10 through 12. And Peter's writing here, he says in verse 10, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful search and inquiry. Just imagine this. The prophets of the Old Testament, you know, uh, Daniel, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah. They would pray. They would talk to the Lord and they, they would say, Lord, please tell us about the Messiah. Tell us more about how salvation will take place. Tell us more about the future of your people. They made careful search and inquiry, but look at verse 11. They were seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They wanted to know who the Messiah was, when he would come, what was going to take place. But look at verse 12. It was revealed to them, that's God, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Peter is pointing his finger at the New Testament saints that he was writing to. The Old Testament prophets were not serving themselves. They were serving the people that Peter was writing to and, by extension, us. And he says this, It was revealed to them they were not serving themselves but you in these things, which now have been announced to you through those who preach the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Get this. You and I know more about Christ. We know more about the gospel. We know more about having faith. We know more about Christian living and the Messiah and the culmination of all things than even Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel. We know more than they did. And we receive that through special revelation, the New Testament especially for us. And get this too. It's not just the Old Testament saints that can't understand these things, but look at the end of verse 12. It says, these are things into which angels long to look. Even the angels don't know and can't know what we know. We are a special people. We've been given revelation that these ones could never have. That is an encouragement. We know that we have been given a future salvation, a final inheritance, a living hope. We know about our sovereign election. We know about joy. We know all of these things through special revelation that God has given to us in this special book. We are privileged. Let's never forget that. So when you go through that difficult time, we're done. When you go through that difficult time, I don't know what it is. It's all kinds of different trials in life. I want you to remember these things. You know, um, 
Peter. Remember Peter, the guy who wrote this book? Remember earlier on in his life when he was in that little courtyard and he was watching from a distance and there was Jesus and there was that little servant girl and she came and said, aren't you one of those disciples? What did he say? Oh, no. No, no, no. I'm not one of them. And he ran away and he ended up denying Jesus three times. Boy, what a shameful thing. But you know how Peter ended his life? That's not recorded in Scripture. It's, it's predicted in Scripture, but not recorded. The history books tell us that Peter was crucified upside down. He didn't want to die in the same manner as Christ, his Savior. So they, he requested that he would be crucified upside down. You know he took his own advice. <laughs> Imagine this. It's Peter. I could imagine, you know, he, he's there, he's arrested, and he's facing martyrdom, and he's got these things rolling around in his head. He knew, he knew what he wrote to these believers, and we've only read the first little part of the letter, but he, he knew he'd been sovereignly chosen by God. He knew that he had, he had an ultimate living hope. He knew that he had a final inheritance waiting for him in heaven, it would never dissipate. No one could steal it. It was his. He knew that he had a future salvation which he'd never experienced yet, but it was still coming. He knew that his faith was enduring. He, he had joy in his heart. He couldn't explain it, but it was there. And he knew that he knew all of those things through special revelation provided directly from God. How could he not go to the grave confidently and if that's true for peter how much truer can it be for us who suffer in much less significant ways if those are the lessons that peter would have for the people of his time who were being persecuted and if those are the principles by which he ended his life how much more so for us i pray that this is an encouragement for you for you it doesn't matter how difficult things get. There are tremendous encouragements in Scripture, and we can make it to the end, can't we? In Christ, we have an awful lot to look forward to.